And so the challenge without arming young women with awareness, that's kind of what I call it, is that, you know, we, they enter workplaces believing that if they work hard, that'll be enough. And the reality is, you know, that's not supported by research. You can do everything right. You can have literally all the qualifications, all the experience um, and still not succeed because workplaces discriminate based on, you know, who most closely fits this ideal worker standard. Um, and that can create tremendous challenges for young women. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Hub podcast. This is Agnes, your host. And today I'm joined by Michelle King. Um, hi, Michelle. Hi. So because it's still the COVID-19 lockdowns, uh, Michelle is joining with her children, uh, staying at home, working from home. So let me quickly introduce Michelle uh, to the listeners who may have not heard about her. I've been following your work, Michelle, for a number of years. Uh, I've been really impressed with all the, the information and the content and the, the the power of the advocacy that you're putting out. And so it's an absolute honor and a real pleasure to, to finally have you on the podcast. Um, and the reason why we're going to be speaking now is that uh, your book has come out uh, recently. The book is called The Fix, Overcome the Invisible Barriers that are Holding Women Back at Work. Um, and this came out on the 8th of March this year, 2020, on International Women's Day. So Michelle is a leading expert in gender and organizations. She's currently the director of inclusion at Netflix. Prior to that, she was head of the UN Women's Global Innovation Coalition for Change. Uh, her career spans a number of continents and industries, always advancing women in innovation and technology leading global diversity in, in inclusion programs and generally advocating for women at work. And she holds a PhD from Cranfield School of Management uh, on organizations and gender and an MBA from the Australian Graduate School of Management. So this was, of course, a really condensed uh, introduction. So maybe over to you, Michelle, um, if, if you could tell listeners about you know your passion and what is it that gets you up in the morning and 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 what led you to uh, taking all this research and 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 putting it into the book? Yeah, um, so thank you first of all for having me on on the podcast. Um, so you know how I kind of came to writing the book was I'm I'm a researcher, so I've spent 13 years at university. Um, I'm on degree number five. Um, I just can't seem to leave. And uh, I do love research. So I've been researching women in organizations probably for the last five years or so. And um, I was really, really keen to understand, you know, what women needed to do more or less of um, to advance at work. I noticed through my work as a human resource practitioner that women didn't seem to advance at the same rate as men. And when I first started reading about this topic, it was probably when like books like Lean In were quite popular. And so, you know, I bought into this idea that somehow women needed to do more. Um, to succeed at work, right? So this idea that something's wrong with women, we're lacking something, we need to lean in, we need to be fixed, right? 
And it wasn't until I um, sort of reviewed a lot of the academic literature that I realized that um, that idea is really flawed. It's it's not the case at all. In fact, you know, research after research paper shows that, um, you know, women are incredibly capable just as they are. Women are exceptional leaders, they're exceptional networkers, they're exceptional negotiators. And it's really just that the work environment is not set up um, to support women's advancement. And so in sort of talking about some of what I was finding at different conferences, I realized very soon that most people don't know this and that it wasn't a book out there that had sort of clearly documented all the barriers that women face based on academic literature. And so um, my book is kind of like, in many ways, a bit of a textbook where, you know, it's written just in sort of everyday language. And I share a lot of personal stories in there, but it's based on sort of substantive research that shows uh, there's around sort of 17 different barriers that women experience throughout their careers. And for men, there's about six as well, um, because workplaces were not designed sort of with difference in mind. And I can explain that a bit further. But you know, that's really the challenge that we have is that workplaces were set up for kind of an ideal worker to succeed that tends to be sort of this 1950s male, right? Yeah. <laughs> what I call Don Draper, right? And and that creates tremendous challenges for anybody who doesn't sort of conform to the white male standard of what good leadership looks like in organizations. Um, and so, yeah, so my book really outlines the barriers this creates, how inequality works, why, um, you know, this is really important for men, and most importantly, you know, what we can do to fix workplaces so that, you know, they really work for everybody. Absolutely. And uh, I have to also tell listeners and that the book is so easy to read. And I, I'm saying that because often books come out that are grounded in research, but still read like academic papers um, mm-hmm. and make it very difficult to to kind of gain momentum in reading and get through. But your book is is incredibly well researched, and and I loved the structure, how you break down these barriers, and then you you help with a kind of audit for for the readers <laughs> to go through these questions to understand. Okay, have I experienced this? What's my experience with this type of barrier? And then takes you through uh, an inspiring quote, and then uh, case studies to you know almost like a checklist or do's and don'ts of, of how you can uh, prepare yourself for overcoming. So I would definitely recommend your your book to anybody who, who is interested and, and keen to learn on on this subject. And the, the verdict, you dropped the verdict quite early on in the book saying, you know, most diversity programs are not advancing equality. Workplaces do not value men and women equally. And also you, you write that women being told to get mentoring, coaching, leaning in, networking differently. So all this, you know, advice that is poured on women uh, on how to succeed is, as you say, is built around this ideal worker. And, you know, if the container, if the box is flawed, then whoever you put into the box is just going to struggle against it. Before we go further to, you know, real diversity programs and and the workplace reading your book i was thinking i don't know if you have uh, thought about this uh, yourself but shouldn't we start preparing both men and women boys and girls for a more equal workplace somewhere much uh, earlier down the line so in in high school or colleges because we seem to come into this pipeline of these 
established uh, workplaces with their processes and, and fight against these barriers, shouldn't we somehow reach reach back further earlier to to equip them? And first of all, I also think that your book is definitely for girls and women who are not yet at work, but who are going to go into work later on. Yeah, look, I completely agree with you. Um, like, re really just agree with everything you're saying. I think it's so important um, to actually take people through it early on. And it's something I do address in my books. I talk about how, um, you know, we, we set girls up in a way around education systems and also, you know, how we raise girls, how we socialize girls to think that, you know, um, and boys, but particularly girls, that, you know, work life will function like school life. In fact, it's one of the very first barriers young women face is not sort of being aware that actually organizations are not set up for diversity and that they are hardwired for inequality and that they have these barriers. And so the challenge without arming young women with awareness, that's kind of what I call it, is that, you know, we, they enter workplaces believing that if they work hard, that'll be enough. And the reality is, you know, that's not supported by research. You can do everything right. You can have literally all the qualifications, all the experience um, and still not succeed because workplaces discriminate based on, you know, who most closely fits this ideal worker standard. Um, and that can create tremendous challenges for young women in terms of their confidence. So, you know, there's a great research paper that shows within the first sort of three years of working life, women's confidence drops by more than 60% uh, in terms of, you know, their ability to reach senior leadership positions. And I love that statistic because I think in many ways that just shows how we don't set young women up for success and importantly young men um, also in terms of how inequality works in workplaces and the barriers it creates for them. And, you know, I think a good way to test this in your workplace is just to ask people like, hey, you know, do you know how inequality works? Um, I'm always shocked to find the number of diversity and inclusion practitioners who wouldn't be able to answer that question. Um, you know, they might be able to answer it in society, but not in workplaces. And unfortunately today, I don't think we spend enough time educating on people on what inequality is and how it functions in workplaces and how organizations are designed. You know, we have a lot of um, sort of experts on inclusion, but not necessarily on workplaces. And so that's really challenging because we get solutions that don't really sort of fix the problem. So, yeah, for me, I, I completely agree with what you're saying in terms of this being the number one kind of priority is we need to arm young women early on. Um, with that awareness, which is what my book tries to do, is sort of taking you through like, hey, here's over the life of your career from the beginning right through, you know, to the point even when you're leading, here's all the challenges you're going to encounter and here's all the reasons that it's not you um, and it's your workplace. And I think, you know, the, the challenge is people always want a list of to-do, right, items, mm. like what can I do with this? And the reality is, is simply knowing that is tremendously freeing and tremendously empowering because once you know that it's not you, you're not going to internalize it. And you can see some of these challenges for what they are. I obviously give a lot of solutions in the book, but I think that in all honesty is, is like the best gift you can give people is the gift of being able to see things for what they are. Absolutely. Um, now, you also said something about... Uh, just now about, um, you know, some of these <clears throat> initiatives that are, are put in place do not fix the problem. Uh, you also write about in the book that some of the current solutions that are in place in organizations to advance women are actually making the situation worse. So where is it exactly that you found this or, or, or can you give an example? Because I thought that was so powerful. 
Yeah, you know, we see it all the time. Um, solutions focused on, um, I'll give you one example. So um, a common fix the woman strategy is either like woman-focused training, woman-focused development, woman-focused mentoring. Um, we have loads of these programs, right, that aim to somehow help women fit into work environments that don't value them. And a great example of that is when it comes to things like the pay gap, right? So we'll see there's a pay gap that exists in workplaces because in work environments don't value the contributions of women as much as they do men. Bottom line, that's what the gender pay gap is. Um, and that's after for accounting for all the usual factors that affect wages, there's still this gap based on how we value men and women's contributions. What we find, though, is the solutions tend to be fixing women. So we'll have organizations that promote women speaking up, women negotiating, women asking for more pay. So there'll be this over-reliance on really trying to get women to somehow close the gap that they themselves never created, right? And so what we find, though, is actually there's a great HBR study on this, that women do ask for pay rises and just as often as men, the challenge is they're 25% less likely to get them. In part because women's contributions aren't valued, so they're not going to get a pay rise even if they ask. And number two, the other reason is really that um, when women do ask, right, they this is like one of the key challenges women face in work environments. They are asserting themselves. They're speaking up, right? They're, they're being a bit more dominant and asking for what they want. And when they do that, they're seen as difficult. So when women assert themselves and ask for what they want or what they need, they're sort of defying the standards society holds for how women should behave, which is being meek, mild, unassuming, almost thankful, right, for having yeah. a job. Um, but the standard in workplaces for what good looks like is a masculine one. So it's more dominant, assertive, aggressive, competitive, that, you know. And so the challenge this creates is women are defying the standards, so they're penalised, they're seen as difficult. And so there's a classic example of where, you know, fix a woman's solutions don't work. What does work when it comes to the pay gap um, is studies have shown that companies that simply open up uh, their books and show where the pay gap and how you know how they're going to close that those are the organizations that tend to solve it so we've seen loads of examples of this where companies have publicized their pay data um, and kind of taken accountability for the gap that exists and then closed it within sort of a few years and there's excellent examples I've got some in my book around verb you know different types of organizations Adobe that have been doing this and so for me you know the quickest way to close the pay gap is to publicize your data and tell us where the gap exists because then you're accountable for closing it. And so, you know, it takes the emphasis off women um, and it puts it onto the organization. And the, and the last thing I'll say around this is, you know, there are additional studies that also show while men may ask occasionally for pay rise, um, you know, and, and women do as well, at sort of similar rates, you know, men generally um, don't have to ask as much because they're already getting the pay um, increase. And so the challenge is that, you know, asking women to ask for a pay increase is something I feel is quite misogynistic in a way because it's not something we ask of men. So I always say to women, you know, when you think you're being asked to change yourself or but it's somehow framed in development, you know, it can make it hard to see, you know, is this building on my strengths? Is this helping to advance? me or is am I being asked to change who I am and sort of fix something that's not broken and a quick way to sort of check in on that is to really see you know is this something the organization would ask men to do and use that as your benchmark of deciding whether 
you know, what you're being told to do is actually helping you and developing your strengths or if it's something that is really trying to change or fix you to, you know, solve a problem that you really didn't create. Yeah, and, and also what you say, I want to pick up on two things here. One of them is because there's this um, organizational mantra about resources being finite and as women have the care responsibilities as well, Studies also show that women are much more likely to negotiate their working time or work flexibility and not their pay because they feel they can only ask for one or the other, right? Not, not both. And then the other one that you were, you were talking about, you know, the masculine fixation of, of organizations, for lack of a better word. Um, and, and I loved reading in the book about the femininity stigma. Uh, mm -hmm. Would you mind explaining that? I think that links quite nicely to what we've just been discussing. Yeah, so, you know, it's it's interesting because, like I was saying before, there's this masculine ideal standard, right, that women are meant to live up to because it's um, intrinsically linked with being a good leader. So when you think of what a good leader looks like, you're going to think of this 1950s, what I call Don Draper, if you've seen Mad Men, it's, 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 a, it's a TV show. It, Don Draper is this, you know, 1950s macho, white, yeah. macho man, right? Um, and so for women, that creates the challenge because you can't live up to that standard without engaging in masculine behaviors. And when you do that, you penalize because, um, you know, you're not displaying sort of this, the feminine behaviors you're meant to to be seen as a woman, right? So incredibly challenging. But um, something we don't think about is the reverse is also true for men. So for men, um, it's actually a little tougher because being a man is intrinsically linked to living up to Don Draper. Um, and so is being a leader. So men have this much harder penalty to pay if they deviate from Don in any way. So if they engage in sort of more empathetic, democratic, supportive, collaborative, um, vulnerable behaviors, they're likely to be penalized. This is the femininity stigma. So they're likely to be seen as, you know, less um, ambitious, less leader-like, less focused on their career. And as a result, they're less likely to get sort of promotion opportunities, advancement opportunities. Um, and I've got a great statistic on this that, you know, research shows that sort of men who just simply reducing their work hours for family reasons. So many say to their boss, hey, I've got to reduce my work hours to look after my kids, which is very real right now, right? Research finds they're likely to face a 26% reduction in pay. And that's compared to women who face a 23% reduction. So the penalty in some respects is greater for men when they deviate from Don. And the reason for that is they're not only betraying their gender, but they're also betraying what good looks like for a leader. So, you know, I, I always say men need this more than women do because the world of work is changing and what we're increasingly seeing is while Don Draper might have been the standard for what good looks like in the 1950s um, for leaders, it's certainly not today. And today, you know, you, if you're trying to be effective in work environments, you need to be able to collaborate, you need to be able to be empathetic, understanding, democratic, all the things that we associate with women. And so men, um, you know, always joke and say they need this more than we do because they need the freedom to be able to display some of those other behaviors and be vulnerable and, you know, really be an effective leader. Um, you know, command and control styles of work have kind of gone. And increasingly, as, you know, technological advancements kind of unfold over the next few years, 
we're going to need leaders who can demonstrate some of those more what we call transformational behaviors. So this is the challenge we're presented with today um, for men. And I, I say, you know, for men, the starting point is to really think about, you know, what it means to be a man at work and how Don Draper's played out. And if this is something you feel like you need to live up to, you know, just having that awareness can be the starting point for really changing some of those behaviors. Do you think that the uh, COVID-19, uh, the pandemic uh situation that the way it has shaped how now we're working and being somehow more vulnerable that we have to show our whole selves uh, i'm just laughing about all these late night show you know talk show hosts uh, the jimmy kimmels and and the corbins and you know recording this from home they were so uncomfortable in the beginning you know without the studio without their desks without Uh, their suits and and somehow they seem to be easing into it and speaking more about you know what it means to juggle family and and work at home um but but I, we see that also in other you know in in you know everyday families how now men all of a sudden are there at home as well with the children and do, do you think this will have a lasting effect uh on on the gender imbalances or the way leaders think about uh, these issues Yeah, I think the challenge is, you know, even if we're showing more of ourselves, um, and I'm actually writing an article on this now, and it doesn't, inequality doesn't disappear, it just changes, right? Unless we become aware of it, um, it just takes on a new form. Like we're seeing this play out in so many different ways for women who are less productive, um, who are struggling with greater stress because they're managing most of the dependent um, and, you know, in terms of childcare um, or elderly care, as well as sort of household requirements. And it's an incredibly stressful time for women because there's no ways to do that um, and, and work at the same time. And we know things as simple as a child appearing on a Zoom call, um, you know, men are going to be seen as in a positive light in terms of providing for their family. Women will be seen in a negative light in terms of not being um, as, as focused on their work. And so it plays out differently for men and women. And I think the challenge is, is, you know, in this environment is really trying to see all the ways that it's affecting women. We know that if women even want to take a gap during COVID-19 um, from their employment, they're going to be penalized when they come back in terms of their pay. And we just, you know, it's just really challenging time for women. And so I think the key is to try and think about, you know, different ways that we can support women during this time. And, and, uh, and for me, that's actually making women aware of, all the ways that COVID-19 is creating challenges for them and also having employers who think about that. So, for example, you know, um, an organization that I know um, has made it mandatory that on a Friday there's absolutely no meetings um, just to give, you know, parents a, a break and to mm -hmm. give people a break. I know organizations that have actually just worked with the, um, working parents to say, hey, you do half a day. Um, yeah. And, you know, so there are different ways to structure. It. And I think organizations that are trying to adapt to this and see the whole person um, have to think about individual needs. And it plays out differently for different people, right? Single people are struggling with mental health issues, being isolated. So I think it's all about seeing individuals and really trying to cater to that. Yeah, there is definitely a spectrum and it's not affecting one end of the spectrum more than the other, but in a different way, obviously. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, we, we, we ran a survey actually still open and we asked the respondents whether their uh, tasks have been reduced 
as a way to support them cope with, with working from home. And actually 80% or 70% said, no, their tasks remain the same. And 14% said their tasks have even increased all the while they have to, you know, homeschool children or at least care for children or at least give them food, you know, the, <laughs> the, the bare minimum if you want. Um, but, uh, but it's true that, um, I think what you, the examples you've been given is, is great because, uh, there still seem to be a number of organizations that do not really uh, reckon with that on, you know, in the homes or in, in the lives of, of their employees. There, there's a real struggle going on now when they cannot come to the workplace or when schools and child cares are, are closed. I also wanted to ask you about a little bit more about this um, the processes that are in place in organizations that are perpetuating this ideal worker image, the ideal worker uh, type, you know, the Don Draper career path for the few, uh, because you've had, you know, so much experience working as a practitioner, but also as a researcher, which of these systems uh, would you say organizations really need to tackle? Maybe just a list or a bullet point of, you know, is it, shall we start at recruiting? Shall we start with how we advertise? Or is it the, the coaching program? What is it that you would say, you know, a couple of these processes that organizations really need to take a, a hard look at and say, okay, we need to modernize it and make it much more inclusive? Yeah, so I would say don't worry about any of your processes. Focus on uh, culture. Mm -hmm. So focus on the day-to-day behaviors. Focus on the interactions. Focus on managing the moments. So the moments are where culture happens. Culture happens in day-to-day exchanges that we have, right? Um, And so something like somebody making a sexist comment or a sexist joke or somebody um, talking over somebody in a meeting – all of those moments build culture. And those are the moments where we, you know, where they go unchecked that actually can create inequality. So when you're on your Zoom calls, are you as a leader creating time for people to talk about inclusion topics? Like schedule 15 minutes on your agenda to do a check-in and say, how's everybody feeling today? How are we coping with mental health? How can we support each other? What do you all need? How can we practice inclusion during COVID-19? Let's have these conversations with our teams because that's what builds culture. You can have all the policies in the world, right? In many ways, I can't stand policies because I think they set a limit on what good looks like. You know, you can have a policy around flexible work. You can have a policy around maternity leave. But the reality is if you don't have leaders who take up sort of parental leave or you don't have leaders who work flexibly or you don't have leaders who value people who are on reduced work schedules, none of that matters. And so for me, this is about like getting away from telling leaders what should be prescriptive and actually asking leaders to lead. Like now is the time for leaders to lead. And if you're not checking in with your team, if you don't understand the individual challenges people are dealing with and if you don't understand how people are experiencing COVID-19 in different ways and the impact this is having on their ability to perform. You're not doing your job as a leader. And so I think for me, this is the time to hold leaders accountable for leading. And that's kind of the trick that we've missed uh, in all this work. And a lot of uh, the people we speak to, a lot of the employees, you know, they are working in organizations where there's not a lot of transparency or not a lot of trust. Uh, still quite a lot of fear around job insecurity or 
um, you know, learning anxiety, how will I be able to cope? And, and one of their key challenges are, is this um, upward feedback. How can I tell my boss that he's not managing this situation well? How can I hold him accountable? Would you have um, an idea or, or, or you know, a, what, what would be your thinking around giving this feedback uh, upward? Yeah, look, I think it's really important um, to have allies. So something I talk a lot about in my book, it's it's really hard to ask people in positions, um, underrepresented individuals, you know, who felt marginalized or discriminated against um, to kind of tackle inequality. They have no hand in creating. So I don't like to ask um, people to kind of solve this on their own. I think the key is, you know, to have allies in the workplace, people who you can work with to tackle the problem together. And, you know, what I mean by this is women can support other women. Men are in a great position of privilege and power because they more closely fit the Dondre prototype to be able to support women. So, for example, if a leader, and this has happened to me, I mean, I got told to, it's a story I've shared many times, I got told to wash the dishes in the sink on my first day as a manager because I was the only woman on the team. And all the men who reported to me laughed. Um, and I felt terrible, right? My boss had said that um, in front of everybody. And so that was a great time for, like, male allies to step in and say to my boss, hey, you know, that's not cool. Or, hey, you know, like, that's not something we we sort of say here. Um, that's actually sort of really demeaning to Michelle. And had one male kind of spoken up and said any of that, it would have transformed um how people perceive my boss and also called him um, to account for his behavior. And so I think that's actually what we need. We need men and women to become aware of the barriers that exist in workplaces so they can call them out when they happen and advocate for one another. You know, even something going back to pay, as simple as asking for a pay rise, you know, research finds it's much easier for women to advocate for each other than it is for them to advocate for themselves. And so, you know, I think it's really important for us to rely on our allies because they help us see things um, a lot, a lot more clearly uh, than than we can sometimes see it ourselves. Thank you so much for this because I think it's a it's a very clear and also seems to be a very safe uh, strategy, uh, something that everybody can implement uh, for whatever uh, agenda, whatever aspect of uh, their working life they need to to improve. Um, now, time is, of course, running very, very quickly here on the podcast. So before we go to the last question, can I ask you, Michelle, to share with listeners where they can find out more about you, you, your work, the book? Yes. Um, so I have a website, michellepking.com, and I encourage everybody um, to go there to learn more and find out more about me. Um, and I also have a podcast called The Fix, which you can access there and a newsletter that you can sign up to. Yes, I would definitely encourage everybody to sign up to your newsletter because it's full of fantastic uh, information and, and, and very inspiring. And I just, you know, there are these people out there who I think must be somehow cheating and they have 36 hours in the day, whereas I only seem to have 12. So I think we're, you're one of these people. Um, before we, so, no, so now, uh, before we close... Uh, we always ask the same question here on, on the Work Life Hub podcast. If I could ask you, Michelle, to give leaders who are listening, managers, senior managers, if I could give, ask you just to give one advice on how they can start fixing their organizations, what would you say to them? 
Uh, you know, for leaders, I would I would definitely come back to kind of what I shared before around, you know, get to know the barriers. Um, read my book, read other books, um, like my friend Minda Hart's, her book, The Memo, is great. You know, read these books that talk about the barriers and how they're different for everybody. Know the barriers um, so that you can pay attention to the moments and manage those moments when they show up. You know, it's very hard for leaders to give women career advice if they don't know what the barriers are that women encounter. So for me, this is about leaders really having that knowledge so that they can show up in the right way and be the right kind of um, support to women, um, but also leader, right, and coach and advisor, and, and that's what we need. And you can't do that if you don't know what the challenges are that we experience or even how inequality works and what your role in is in dismantling it. Great. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. I, thank I, you. This conversation was uh, even more than I hoped, so I'm very happy that we managed to find the time and congratulations on your book and and i wish you really the best of success with the book and and in your future work as well awesome thank you so much have a good day thank you